the gritty we're going to get into in the first one. So, but for the first, so this is the first in a series discussing the tefillot of Yamim Noraim, discussing the tefillot of the high holidays. And uh, of course, the goal is to uh, have a more meaningful experience. I think that the, the goal of, of studying tefillah is to have more, uh, more meaningful experience of the tefillot on the high holidays. And we know that... Uh, Tefillah plays an extraordinarily significant role on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, more so than on any other holiday. Obviously, we have tefillah every single day of the year. You know, there's 365 days a year, there's tefillot. And on Chagim and Shabbatot, the tefillah is a little bit longer, there's a little bit more, there's a musaf, there's, it's a little more involved. But on no days... Uh, does it approach the level of intensity quantitatively and qualitatively that it, uh, that it does on uh, the Yamim Anoraim, on the high holidays? People associate it first and foremost with uh, going to synagogue and praying. I mean, that's really like the imagery of the day of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur is very much uh, related to, uh, to the idea of, of being in the Bet Knesset for longer than usual. Okay, obviously Yom Kippur, it's practically the whole day, but uh, even Rosh Hashanah, there's a really significant time commitment and, and the main event is really the tefillot of the day. So in order to get the most out of the experience of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, you really have to understand what's going on in the tefillot. But in order to do that, I think there's a step even before that that we have to, uh, we have to take a, a, a detour before we begin the journey, which is we have to get into what is tefillah. Because... Obviously, we won't be able to appreciate what the prayers of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are about or what they're trying to accomplish, what the themes are, uh, what the objective is, if we don't first have a good sense of what tefillah is uh, meant for in general. In other words, the idea that these are days that there's a special emphasis on tefillah is because tefillah is the type of activity that's appropriate for these days. But if we don't understand what tefillah really is about in general, so then we don't have the tools to understand what Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur tefillot are about. So I guess that, that should be, you know, that should be clear. So to begin, we have to ask ourselves, what is the purpose of praying? What is the purpose of tefillah? And I think we all have a, a different um, uh, answers to that question possibly, but uh, is there any one answer? Does anybody want to be the, uh, the, the, the korban and the guinea pig of the, uh, of the class and say, why, what is prayer? Or I'll, I'll put it differently because I don't want to put you on the spot for that. I don't, wanna, I don't want an intellectual answer. I want a simple answer. Why do people pray? Why do people pray? Because that's not what you want to answer. You want to give, you want to advertise for Judaism demystified. He wants, he wants a shameless plug. We're, we're, we're looking for what is, what, why do people pray? What, what is their, what is the average person that they approach prayer? What is, what's on their mind? Yes. Okay. So when you speak, do you hear back from him or? Not really, right? So it's, so it's one, it's a monologue, right? It's, so, it's a, so speaking to Hashem, right? Okay, that's definitely part of it. You're addressing Hashem in the prayer. You say, Baruch Atah Hashem. Blessed are you, Hashem. You're talking to Hashem. That's true. What's the goal, though? What moves a person to pray? Yes? Yeah. So, you, so, so, so the purpose of tefillah is, or how does it fit into that? So it's, you're, you're expressing your love and your faith in God. Is that what you're saying? Okay, I like that. Okay, yes. Okay, very good. Okay, this is not what I was expecting. I, I, I was expecting a much more simple answer. These are answers are very philosophical answers. Right? So you're all focusing, almost everyone is focusing really so far on what we call the part of tefillah, which is the shevach, right? The, the, the praising of God, okay? Praising Hashem or being thankful to Hashem, expressing our 
trust in God, expressing our appreciation or like saying, uh, increasing our sense of appreciation for Hashem's wonder. All of that is really noble reason to pray. Okay? Yes. Huh? Right so, so right, so that's similar, right? There's a sense of connection and relationship when you're, when, you're, when you're praying. Yes. Okay, so that's what I was kind of expecting first. Right? This, is the on, this is the honest answer. Can I, did you want to say it again or should I reason? Say it again, louder, go ahead. When people need something, when do they usually pray? When they need something, right? That's the most basic reason if you ask the average person when does the average person feel inspired to pray it's when they're in trouble usually they, they need some right now all of the other things that were said are true and maybe they are a good reason philosophically for a person to pray all the time but most people's instinct is to pray when they're in trouble in fact the Gemara even says that a thief you know who's a thief prays that he won't be caught. You know, he prays to Hashem, please, I'm breaking into somebody's house. May I not be caught, you know, on my way out. So uh, it's, it's natural. You know, even a criminal is praying that they won't be caught on their way out from uh, bur- burglarizing somebody. So that's an instinctive reason to pray. And, that's a re- that's, and you see that a lot of our prayers are requests. Right? If you look at the structure of the Amidah, it starts by praising Hashem and it ends by thanking Hashem. But in the middle, sandwiched in the middle, are a whole bunch of blessings that are essentially asking Hashem for something. Right? Bakashot. We call it, you know, this is the, the section of, of request. So you have Shevach, which is praising Hashem, which is actually a relatively short section, but it's, a, it's the most important section, actually, of the Amidah. If a person doesn't have uh, concentration during that part, the whole Amidah is, is, is not valid. So it's very critical, but it's very short. And then the rest, all the requests, take up the majority of the meat in the sandwich of the, of the Amidah. And then you conclude with the thanks. So there's a lot of requesting, and request, of course, comes from a sense of need or dependence on God. That's definitely a part of it too. So I think what everybody said is true. Now what the rabbis, where they derive the mitzvah of prayer is from something in the Shema also, but a different pasuk in the Shema than what you mentioned. Okay, they, they derive it from uh, the pasuk of ul ovdo, to serve Hashem bechol levavchem. Right, it says, ezohi avodah shebalev, what kind of service comes from the heart? What, what service happens in the heart of a person? This is tefillah. Tefillah is a service of Hashem. So whereas most people who are not as noble and as selfless as, as, uh, as you guys, you know, average people who are mainly praying because they want something. So it sounds jarring to say that tefillah is mainly serving Hashem. Because for a lot of people... Tefillah is mainly about getting God to serve us. You know, it's about persuading God to do what we want. You know, that's, that's what, how many people approach tefillah is from a perspective of how can I get Hashem to do what I want, to align with my will? How can I persuade Him? What do I need to do? What words do I have to say? What kavanot do I have to uh, keep in mind? Whatever it is to enable my tefillah to be effective. What does effective mean? And I find it interesting, you know, a lot of times they talk about, is prayer effective? Does it work? You know, how can you measure that? It depends what you're looking. If what you mean by is prayer effective, does it cause magic to happen in the outside world? Probably you you won't find statistically that uh, the number of people praying that get actually what they're praying for, does it make a difference if you have a control group and you do an experiment, you know, and, a, and, and you have some people pray and some people not pray, will the people who pray be more likely to get what they wanted than the people who didn't pray? I'm not sure how that, how that research would go. Maybe somebody can do that as a... Yeah, as a who, if you ask who? A doctor? A doctor? Well, right, but they're talking about from the psychological perspective, right? In other words, and I think there's some truth to that, meaning like a person who's praying a lot of times, they are, it's like a type of meditation, it's a, it, psychologically and emotionally, it helps people, it, gives, it keeps them grounded, it strengthens their emunah, it's, it's positive thinking, it's optimistic thinking, and so therefore it gets them into a, a zone that is much more productive, so it actually, that's what I, you know, it does work in this, if you're, what you mean by work is that it can change a person's perspective and it can change 
what we are seeking. Because if you think about requesting, right, you can request whatever you want from Hashem, but the tefillah also shows us what to request and in what order to request. So it's not just telling you that everything that you have comes from Hashem, which we know. It's telling you what you should want and why you should want it. If you really look carefully at the prayers, it's also telling you why you should want it. You should want it because it's Hashem's will. You should want it. It says, you should do teshuvah, and we say because, because Hashem wants us to do teshuvah. That's why we should do it. Because that's part of God's plan, that we're a work in progress and we're growing. We ask for forgiveness, but because, because you forgive Hashem. Don't do it because I'm saying, do it because it's part of Hashem's plan that He gives people a second chance, third, fiftieth, hundredth chance. Okay? He gives a lot of, uh, there's a lot of opportunity for correcting, for rerouting and, in our lives, and that's part of what Hashem did. So a person is, is learning from the tefillah what they should want and why they should want it. And that's why it's avodah. So even in our request from Hashem, the request is helping us clarify and prioritize what we want and help us think about why we want what we want and if it's for the right reasons or not the right reasons. Because we don't say, Hashem, give me parnasab because I need it and I want it and this is the way that I want things to be and therefore you need to deliver. We say, because... Because you are el tovu because you are good to all your creatures, and I'm one of your creatures, and you provide abundantly for your creatures, and that's why I want it. I want it because it's part of Hashem's plan. Okay, we're changing our orientation to the good that we seek from life, and doesn't it also change a little bit how you'll live your life if you think that way? Because if you think in terms of I want to become wise because Hashem, because Hashem wants people to be enlightened and to have knowledge and to have wisdom and to live their lives according to wisdom. Isn't that also going to affect the way that I study and what I study and how I study? Because I realize that I need to be studying in a way that's the way Hashem intends for me to do it. I need to go about these things. I need to seek parnasah in a way that is the way Hashem designs for us to seek it and for the reasons that Hashem wills for us to seek it. Not just because I'm trying to get God to the negotiating table to be able to come out with a yes from God for whatever my demands are. It's the opposite. It's actually avodah shebalev. It's really a service of God because I'm looking at all my current priorities, what I want and why I want what I want, and I'm rethinking it, okay? And that's, and of course, you know, I know I've, I've spoken about it a million times, maybe not to this group, but you could probably hear half a dozen shirim over the last 10 years on the topic of tefillat chana, you know, that the rabbis point to the example of chana as the ultimate example of prayer, because what did chana do? Chana wanted a child, and we read it on Rosh Hashanah, and that's not an accident, by the way, but we'll come to that in a second, Okay. What did Chana want? She wanted a child. She was without child, right? And her co-wife, Pnina, had children and she did not have children. When she prays, something fundamental changes. So if you ask a very simple question, what did Chana say in her tefillah? Give me a child and I'm going to give him up to the Beit HaMikdash and he's going to become a great leader of the Jewish people growing up in the Beit HaMikdash, essentially. I'm going to give him up. So if I ask you, did Chana get what she wanted in the end of the story or not? What's the answer? Did she get what she originally wanted? Or did she change what she wanted? She changed what she wanted. She wanted a child for her own satisfaction of being a mother, which is most people have an instinct. They want to be a parent and they want to have a family. They don't think too much into it, right? It's natural to want to have children and, and raise a family. And Chana realized, wait a second, I don't have any children. And one of the things it says in the Torah is that when the Jewish people are living up to their fullest potential, one of the bachot that we're promised is that there won't be any infertility. Everybody will have children. So instead of just looking at my own personal plight that I don't have children, I need to look at this as a systemic problem. 
the Jewish people lack leadership. And that's why we've fallen into a pit where we're having a lack of blessing. And, this, and, she, and of course, if you read the book of Shmuel, you see that the leadership was, fun, was very corrupt, the Bnei Eli, very corrupt leaders. And so she said, I'm not going to pray for a child for myself just to gratify myself. I'm going to pray for a solution to the real problem. Through me. I want to be the vehicle of the solution to the problem. The problem being that the Jewish people have a failure of spiritual leadership. I'm going to provide the leader who is going to guide them in the proper direction. And that is Shmuel. Now imagine if Hana had just been like every other ordinary person and just had children from the get-go, from the beginning of her marriage and never really had to think about it. There never would have been a Shmuel. And what would have happened to the Jewish people? They would have just continued to sink into that bottomless pit of corruption that they were being shoved into by the Bnei Eli and who knows when it would have turned around. But because Hana had this difficulty in her life, instead of just pushing against the difficulty, she reframed the whole way that she approached the problem. She changed what she wanted and when you change what you want, so now sometimes it changes your fate. It changes your destiny. And that's exactly what happened to Hana. Even though afterwards she had lots of children after that. Right? Meaning the whole thing, the whole purpose of it was for her to come to this epiphany that she would be able to be the vehicle of Shmuel coming into the world and the Jewish people having really a golden age of religious revival that happened in the times of Shmuel. Okay? Only because she had that frustration. Most of us just either ignore frustration or distract ourselves, or just struggle with it and fight against it head on. Very few people say, wait a second, I'm experiencing a frustration. What's the underlying systemic issue here? Can I look at this differently? Can I approach this in a totally different way? Is there something about the way I'm looking at this that I can tweak or I can completely revise and maybe it, will, maybe it will take me in a new direction. And that's what happened to Hana. That's really what tefillah is supposed to be. When a person is, what is, this, what is the phrase that we use to describe tefillah? Omed lifnei Hashem. To stand before Hashem. What does it mean to say? You're always in front of Hashem. There's, there's, there's no idea of, there's no location that is before Hashem. It's a mental state. Omed lifnei Hashem means I'm looking at myself in terms of my relationship with Hashem. I'm looking at myself in the context of God's plan and trying to understand where I fit in. That's why when we talk about Teshuvah, it always says the return is to Hashem. It means return to an awareness of Hashem. When the Rambam talks about Teshuvah, he says that mitzvah of Teshuvah is to return lifnei Hashem, to return to a state of being in the presence of Hashem. And when you understand that really that's what tefillah is, tefillah is a moment where a person, not a moment, hopefully it lasts more than a moment, tefillah is a a mental state in which the person is standing before God, meaning that they're seeing themselves from a bird's eye view. They're seeing their, what is my purpose in life and what are my priorities and where am I maybe going wrong? Where am I going right is also good. You know, where, where, where where do I need to reconsider and recalibrate? That state of mind is tefillah. That's why we start with praise of Hashem. We start with Shevach. We start with praise of Hashem because we're setting the framework. And then we look at our needs. We look at where we are as works in progress that we all are. Okay? This is why Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur have such an emphasis on tefillah. Because what is really tefillah? It's la'amod lifnei Hashem. It's to stand in the presence of Hashem. And what is teshuvah? Lashuv lifnei Hashem, like the Rambam says, to return to a state of being before Hashem. But there are two parts of the, there are two elements to la mod lifnei Hashem. The Rambam also very beautifully formulates this. He says that you have two mitzvot. When a person really reflects on Hashem, and I liked how some of the girls were describing the idea of the wonders of Hashem, the emunah, and the, and, and the recognition of Hashem that we have in tefillah. There are two different reactions that a person has. One, the Rambam says, is avat Hashem. Person becomes enamored with God. Person becomes inspired. They want more. They want more closeness. They want more understanding of Hashem. The, the positive. But a person is also awestruck. Okay? Awestruck. It's like when you... I use this very silly analogy, very human analogy. Let's say there's some author that you love or some musician that you love or some artist that you love. 
trying to use every type of creative work that there is, right? The more you see of their work, the more you want to see of it. You would love to get to know them and know what's going on inside their head, you know? You feel drawn to them. You say, wow, I wish they had made more music. I wish they had done more art. I wish they had written more books, whatever. You know, there's, you can't get enough. But there's also a sense of, wow, when I look at my own abilities relative to the ability of that great master, I'm like nothing. You know, I feel so small. You feel, you, you have a sense of your own deficiency, your own limitations in the presence of someone so great. I'm using a human analogy, but that's sort of what a person experiences when they reflect on Hashem. There's inspiration. There's amazement. There's, being in, there's a desire to know more and to see more, but there's also a sense of smallness. There's also a sense of, yeah, that person is, or, you know, like when you, well, in Hashem's case, not that being is so superior and I am so small. Just like when you would see some, whatever field you're in, there's somebody better than you, Right? No matter what field you're in, there's somebody that you're like, I wish I, I, I had that person's ability. I wish I had their talent. I wish I had their dedication. I wish I, whatever. I wish I could produce what they produce. Everybody has that in their field, whatever the field is. Okay? So that feeling, on one hand, wow, I'd like to become in their circle. I want to be a part of that. But on the other hand, I feel so small. I feel so insignificant. I feel so in, you know, incompetent. And that's, what the Rambam calls Yirat Hashem. Ahavat Hashem is the love, the desire. Yirat Hashem is the feeling of smallness, the feeling of humility when you see someone great, so great, so superior. And so it's called Yamim Noraim. We call the high holidays Yamim Noraim because the focus is on seeing our own smallness, thinking of the majesty of Hashem, thinking of the greatness of Hashem. But we don't say Halel on Rosh Hashanah because there are days of Yirat. There are days where the emphasis is on the awe of God. That's called in English the days of awe, right? They call it the days of awe, right? Now, in the olden days, they used to translate awe as terror because that was old English. In old English, like awesome and terrible. They would say, it would say in the, in the English, the very old English machsorim from 120 years ago or whatever, it would say, Hashem is the great, the mighty, and the terrible, Right? Meaning, meaning, meaning what we would, Noah. Noah means, te- but like nowadays, terrible means like bad, you know? We wouldn't use that term. We'd say awesome or awe inspiring or something like that. Even awesome has become something that like teenagers say. It doesn't have like the same feeling of gravitas as, as it is supposed to. But the awesomeness of Hashem is what we're supposed to be thinking about, meaning our own small position relative to the greatness of Hashem is really the emphasis on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And that's why tefillah is so critical because that's what tefillah, a big part of tefillah is that experience. A big part of it. And we also do something very strange in Rosh Hashanah, as in particular in tefillah, which is that we, we include in the tefillah an interruption in the middle of the tefillah. What, what do we interrupt with in the middle of the tefillah in Rosh Hashanah? We start blowing, we start playing musical instruments, you know. A crude musical instrument of the shofar, but we start blowing the shofar in the middle of the tefillah. You don't find uh, things being done in the middle of the tefillah, generally in the middle of the amidah, but we put the shofar in the middle of the amidah. Now, that must mean that the, somehow the shofar fits seamlessly in with whatever the tefillah is. Because we wouldn't just interrupt in the, we wouldn't even interrupt in the middle of the tefillah to, I don't know, read the Torah, for example. You, you wouldn't. Even another mitzvah, you wouldn't interrupt in the middle to do it. So why are we interrupting in the middle to, to, to blow the shofar? What does that show us about what the shofar really is then? Doesn't it tell you something? It's, part, it's a type of tefillah, right? It's, ex, it's in some way expressing the same awareness or the same yearning or the same uh, state of mind as tefillah, but it's expressing it without words. Words can only go so far to express something that's really beyond their ability to express. So what does the shofar express? It expresses malchiot, it expresses the idea of God's kingship. It expresses the idea that of God's omniscience, which is zichronot. It expresses the idea of our yearning 
to be able to break free of whatever's holding us back and be able to live in light of God's plan and in light of God's wisdom that is, is beckoning to us, okay? So th- this is all p- built into tefillah. We blow it during the tefillah because it's a type of a, uh, an enhancement of the tefillah. What are we doing in tefillah? We're declaring the, uh, God's kingship. We're looking at ourselves in light of that. And that's exactly what the shofar is doing, but without words. It's coming from a, a primal cry. You know, if you close your eyes and you hear a shofar, what does it sound like? It sounds like crying. It's exactly... If, if, if you've ever closed your eyes, if you've ever sometimes been at night in your house and you hear an ambulance, it also... Sometimes you think, oh, is that a baby crying? Especially if you have babies at home. At first, sometimes you might think it's the baby crying and then you realize it's an ambulance outside. Because an ambulance also has that crying because it evokes a certain emotion of alarm. Right? It, it, it's a... It's a very instinctive thing that if you hear cry, a cry means that you're alarmed. And so the cry serves in the same way in tefillah to intensify our experience of the prayers of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Well, not Yom, we don't, today we don't have Yom Kippur. We don't have, they had in, in the days of the Beit HaMikdash once every 50 years on Yom Kippur, they also blew the shofar during the tefillah. We don't have that today. But, um, but during Rosh Hashanah for sure, we have the expression of this awareness of Hashem in our, uh, in our uh, blowing of the shofar as well. That's why we merge the two together. And we, they're not mutually exclusive, but we actually combine them together. And, and actually the main fulfillment of the mitzvah of shofar is the shofar that you hear during the musaf, which many people don't know. They think, oh, because we say the bracha on the first 30 blasts before the musaf, that must be the main one. But actually what's considered to be the complete mitzvah is the mitzvah of hearing it during the musaf. Because that's when you have the ideas that the shofar is expressing combined with the shofar itself. So you can concentrate on those ideas on a, in a more intense way without the use of words. Because sometimes words get in the way of really a pure reflection on an idea. And that's what the shofar is able to encapsulate. That's why the shofar is able to, without saying anything, embody so many different ideas and so many different messages that the tefillah needs many, many words to be able to express. And that, that, that's the beauty of the shofar. But this is, the, what, this is all kind of an introduction to, uh, to understand what is the goal of tefillah? What is the purpose of tefillah? And what is the, and therefore how shofar fits into it? And it's, a, it's an opening to be able to understand the details of the tefillah. But I wanted to point out to you, and I'm just jumping right into the middle. I'm not using any rhyme or reason in doing this. I'm just going by what I feel are the key points that I want to highlight for you to, to, uh, uh, to appreciate. And then we're going to, in, in the next session, we're going to do a different part of the tefillah. But I, I wanted to focus on one core thing, which is that we all know that um, unlike all other chagim, on all other Chagim, Shabbat is unique. Every Amidah of Shabbat is different. Arvit is different than Shachrit, is different than Musaf, is different than Mincha. Okay? But actually, if you did the wrong one, you still fulfill the mitzvah, you're okay. Right? If you did like the Mincha one for Arvit or something like that, you, 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 they're, they're interchangeable if you did it by accident because essentially it's the same Bachav. Essentially the same thing. Okay? Rosh Hashanah has a totally different Tfilah, especially for the Musaf, than any other, uh, any other prayer. Right? The Musaf of Rosh Hashanah is unique. It's not like any other prayer. And uh, one of the ways in which it's unique is that instead of having three bachot in the beginning and three bachot at the end and one in the middle, like we normally have, three bachot in the beginning, Magen Avraham, Mechaya Metim, Ha'el Kadosh, and then we have Hamachazir Shechinatol Etzion, and the uh, Modim and Sim Shalom as the two bookends. And then in the middle, we have one bracha, Mikadesh Shabbat. It's long, but it's actually one bracha. Or we have Mikadesh Yisrael Vazimani. Or we have Mikadesh Yisrael Rashi Chodeshim. Right? One bracha. Long, but one bracha. On Rosh Hashanah, you have three. Three bachot. One about the kingship of Hashem. One about zikhonot, about Hashem remembers and knows everything. And one about the concept of shofar, and specifically with an emphasis on shofar on Arsinai, 
We're gonna and and in the shofar shel Mashiach. We're not gonna get to that tonight, but I promise we will. I want to get into that, but not tonight. I want to just focus on the first idea of kingship of Hashem, because I think one of the things that we as Jews make a big mistake on when it comes to the Yamim Ha'ra'im is that we think that Rosh Hashanah is mainly about the Jewish people. I'm going to say something controversial. Rosh Hashanah, this is really controversial. Rosh Hashanah is the least Jewish holiday. Argue with me. Okay, what do you mean? I'll tell you how I know it's the least Jewish holiday. Do you know how? Because when is the Rosh Hashanah of the Jewish people? Nisan is the Rosh Hashanah of the Jewish people. If Rosh Hashanah was the most Jewish holiday, then we would be celebrating the first day of Nisan. Because that's actually a Chodesh Hazel Lachem Rosh Chodeshi. Rishon Ulachem Mechotche Hashanah. It's the first. Where do we get the idea? Imagine if everybody decided on July 1st, they said Happy New Year. That's, that, does that make sense? Maybe because it's the beginning of the summer, so finally, you know, maybe since January you didn't have time to, uh, to feel, to rest, okay? But, but, but July 1st cannot be New Year, can it? Because it's the middle of the year. What month is Tishrei on the Jewish calendar? It's the seventh month. So accidentally we start to call that Rosh Hashanah? Somebody made a mistake? And they put the calendar six months ahead and they made it Rosh Hashanah? Is that what happened? Or is there a deeper reason for that? Why is it Rosh Hashanah? Huh? Because of Briyat Olam. Is Briyat Olam Jewish? How many Jews were present at Briyat Olam? There were, there were no humans present, but... Right? None, right? There are no Jews at, at Briyat Olam. At the creation of the world, there were no Jews. So the creation of the world has to do with Adam Rishon, Right? We say, Hayom Harat Olam. Today is the birthday of the world. Or as the Ashkenazim say, Hayom Haras Olam. Today Hashem destroyed the world. But Hayom Harat Olam, today is the birthday of the world. That's talking about Adam Rishon. It's not talking about Jews. You're going to remember that one now. Hayom Haras Olam. The... It's in the prayers. We say Hayom Harat Olam after each one of the, after they blow the shofar. Obviously, we don't have shofar on the first day this year because it's Shabbat. I don't want to confuse everyone, but whenever we do the shofar, we say Hayom Harat Olam. Hayom Yamid Bamishpat. Today is the birthday of the world, right? Technically, we're saying that the world actually was created a few days before, and it's the, the man was created, human beings are created, but like the idea is that it's not really a Jewish holiday. It's really about Briyat Olam. And where else do you see that in the prayer? And this is what I wanted to show you. Okay, if you happen to have a machzorah he- uh, on, uh, uh, that you got. So the very first special bachav, the musaf, which actually is in the shacharit also on page 432. We, we, at the end of each one of them, we say, like we normally do. Hashem, sanctify us with your mitzvot. Purify our heart. You, God, are the true God. And your word, our king, is true and exists forever. We don't just say, We say, Hashem is the king of the universe who sanctifies the Jewish people and Yom Hazikaron. And in fact, even on Yom Kippur, what do we say? Melech al kol haaretz, mikadesh yisrael yom kippur. Even though, what does that have to do with the, the nations of the world? What does that have to do with the entire world? Yom kippur. Yom kippur is about us. We're getting forgiveness from Hashem. The rest of the nations are not getting forgiveness from Hashem. Maybe we can understand why Rosh Hashanah relates to everyone because Rosh Hashanah is the beginning of the creation of the world. But why Yom kippur? Melech al kol haaretz. Why are we mentioning that? Uh, yeah. What did you want to say? Okay. To? Right, Yom Teruah. But it's still called Ubachodesh Hashivi'i. So it's the seventh month. Right? But we're calling it Rosh Hashanah. 
You're right, of course it's the right. I'm not saying we're doing it on the wrong Yeah, there's a couple of different places. There's one in Parshat Emor. It's also correct. You know? No, don't get nervous. It's still called Yom Teruah. It's a day of crying out. With the shof- we use a shofar to do the crying out, but it's a day of crying out. A day of- really, it's a day of tefillah. Yom Teruah means a day of prayer. Yom- we just use the shofar. The Torah is done by the shofar. It means crying out, any kind of crying out. But we, we have a Torah Shabbat Peh that it, it has to be a shofar. But why are we calling it Rosh Hashanah? We're calling it Rosh Hashanah because it's when the world was created. And because from a seasonal perspective, also the Torah says, Betzet Hashanah. It says and that Sukkot is the end of the year. Because agriculturally speaking, right? Agriculturally speaking, it's the beginning of a new year. That's why the school year starts in September. It's not because of Jews. By the way, that nobody did that because of Jewish people that the, that, the, that the school year starts in September. That's because agriculturally it's the beginning of a new year. They finish in the summer, they finish gathering whatever, and then they go back to school. And because in the old days, why did they give off for the summer? Not so you could go to camp. Okay? Not so you could laze around by the pool. They did it because you were going to be working on the farm with your family. And they needed you at home to do all that harvesting. You know? And then, so you couldn't go to school during that time because back then, you only went to school when you could afford to because you didn't have to work, right? If you had to work, then uh, you were not able to go to school. So the summers were off so people could go and work in the fields with their family, okay? So, the, so really, it's the beginning of a new agricultural cycle. That's why mitzvot like shemitah, the, the, the leaving the, year, the, the, the fields fallow for the year, and yovel, and all these things, they happen in Tishrei. They begin in Tishrei. Even though everything related to agriculture and land is Tishrei, because Tishrei is the beginning of the agricultural year, the natural year, you could say. Whereas the Jewish year begins in Nisan. Okay? So, in, so for example, like the, the commentaries talk about the story of Noah, the flood of Noah, when it talks about the different months. Is it talking about the months of the natural year, with Tishrei is the first month? Or is it talking about... The, the, the Torah year of Nisan being the first month, right? Because it's not always clear what the reference, what the frame of reference is of the Torah. There are two different calendars. There's a Jewish calendar and there is a natural calendar. So Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is actually based on the natural calendar. And we talk in the Tfilot. We say, Aleinu Lishabeach. We thank Hashem. That's right before that. If you look on... Uh, if you look on page 427 in this Machzor, which we all recognize, which is us thanking Hashem for the great privilege that we have that we recognize one God and the rest of the nations of the world are, believe in idols. But then we say, Therefore, we, we hope to you, Hashem, that the entire world will come around also to recognize God. And what do we say on... Uh, on, on, four, on 431 Rule over the entire world in your glory Every creature should know that you created it Every creature should understand that you fashioned it okay? It's hard to have a different word Yitzur and Paul is the same thing in English I don't know of a different word right? But um, but the point is that we're praying for the entire world to come to a recognition of God. And I think this is something, that's why I say it's the least Jewish of holidays. I'm just being, I'm being you know, facetious, as they say, not literally. It's the opposite, really. We think of things that are less particularly Jewish as being less Jewish. But the idea is that what is our purpose as the Jewish people? Is it just to be the greatest nation on earth and pat ourselves on the back that we're so amazing? No, the purpose of the Jewish people is to lead all of humanity to a recognition of God. That's the whole purpose of the existence of the Jewish people. It's in order to spread knowledge of God to the world. So when we are doing Teshuvah, what are we doing Teshuvah to? We're doing Teshuvah to our mission, which is supposed to be to bring humanity to a recognition of God. It can only start with us, right? Like when you're on the airplane, what do they say? First, put on your own mask. Right? If the oxygen mask, in the unlikely event of a loss of pressure in the cabin, they, the masks will come down. And remember to secure your own mask before you help somebody else. We first have to secure our own state of commitment to God before we can be responsible for anybody else effectively. Right? Otherwise, they'll just drag us under. But the idea is 
that to return is to return to our mission of being Hashem's ambassadors to all the nations of the world and to bring them to a recognition of God. It's not to just return to our closed off, narrow framework of Jewishness. It's actually to understand that Jewishness is mainly about Kiddush Hashem. Being the chosen people means being the representatives of God to the entire world. God created all the uh, nations. He wants all of them to have the benefit of his wisdom. He wants all of them to have the benefit of, and, the, and if you read any of the prophecies of the times of Mashiach, especially Yeshayahu is probably the most prolific in that. What does it say? It says all the nations will come and say, let us go learn the Torah from the Jewish people. That's the whole concept. So when do, what do we celebrate as our new year, our time of rededication? If we celebrated it in Nisan, that would imply that it's something separate from the rest of the world. Something separate from the nations of the world. By doing it in Tishrei, what are we saying? No, our purpose is to be citizens of the world. It is to actually be the leaders of humanity spiritually to guide them to a recognition of God. We initiate it by our own recognition of Hashem and making sure to internalize that. But of course, we're supposed to ultimately, we have the task of spreading that and sharing that and, and exemplifying that to, to everybody. That's the whole idea. And that's why Rosh Hashanah is, is at this time. It's at the time of the beginning of the natural year. That's why we mention in the prayers again and again the idea that Hashem should rule over the entire world. And that Hashem is Melech al Kola and that Hashem is the, the king of, of the entire universe, and that we pray for all of humanity to come to a recognition of God just as we have. Okay, so this is the, this is what, so, go, so, you know, circling back to where we started, what does it mean to stand before God? It means to look at our lives through the prism of, or for, in the context of, our relationship with Hashem, God's plan. Where do we stand in terms of God's plan? Okay? That's really what tefillah is every day. That's what Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are on a much more intense level. And when we have that reflection, that reflection has to include not just how are we doing as uh, Jews, as spouses, as parents, as teachers, as students, as whatever roles that we play in our own life, but they, it also has to be how am I doing in terms of being an ambassador of Hashem to the world at large? How are we as a nation doing in that, in that mission? That's part of what the reflection has to be. And so this is why it's so critical to have all these different components as a part of our tefillot of, of Rosh Hashanah. Bezrat Hashem, next week, we will go into the other two parts of the Musaf of Rosh Hashanah, which really embodies like the essential themes of Rosh Hashanah and maybe a little bit about the Torah reading of Rosh Hashanah. And then in the upcoming weeks after that, we'll eventually, uh, we'll get also into Yom Kippur. But next week and the week after, Bezrat Hashem will complete the uh, picture of the Rosh Hashanah prayers so we can fully get in there and just know what we're, you know, what, what the focus is supposed to be. Because there is so much that if you don't have certain key themes in mind, you, you get lost. If you have, you're not going to be able, and I think everyone should be realistic, you're not going to be able to have kavanah on every word of every prayer because it's, it's a lot quantitatively. So that seems to be counterproductive sometimes, right? But I don't see it that way. I see it the other way. I think that because it's so much, like something is bound to catch your attention. You know, if it was very short, then your attention span of a few seconds, you might miss the entire thing. It goes all over your head. This way, there's so much, and there's so many ways that the different themes are elaborated. As long as you know what those themes are and you're looking for them, you'll notice something, you'll connect to something through the course of the prayer. It won't be every point, but you'll be able to connect to some of the points because you're coming equipped with a sense of what it's all about. Okay? Now, any questions before we conclude? Yes, you had another one? Nah. Mm-hmm. It's a great analogy. And how do you explain the Yudhima Vida? Where Hashem is very, like, his attributes are human like attributes. Mm-hmm. So we don't look at a superstar, we don't look at someone who we put on a high pedestal as someone who necessarily shares the equality that he has with us. So how would you explain that what would be a good theme or mindset to have with the Yudhima Vida? 
That's a really good question. I think um, it touches on Selichot, obviously, because we say Yud Yom a lot in Selichot. It also touches on Yom Kippur, especially, because on, on Yom Kippur we have a lot of Yud Yom So the 13 attributes of Hashem that we mention, Hashem, Hashem, El Rachum, Vechanun, etc. So it's important to realize why does it say Hashem, Hashem in the beginning two times? Why does it say Hashem, Hashem, El Rachum, Vechanun? Because the idea is that even though we see Hashem's interactions with us or we see Hashem's actions in the world as being various, you know, sometimes it's midat sometimes it's judgment, sometimes it's patience, sometimes it's compassion, sometimes it's this or that. Hashem, Hashem means Hashem ultimately is none of those things. He's above and beyond. He's transcendent. So because Yud Kevavke means Haya Hoveviyeh, timeless, eternal, transcendent, separate. So don't confuse what he does with what he is, right? So in terms of understanding what he does, we use a human model because we want to learn how he governs the world so we can emulate him. So if we couldn't, if we weren't able to use human categories to describe what God does, then we wouldn't be able to, it wouldn't be meaningful to us in terms of our own development. How can we learn from the ways of Hashem? We have to translate it into our own language, you know? So, yeah, we see that Hashem, let's say, for example, provides for all of his creatures so that they can thrive. So we call that being rachum or being chanun or one of these terms or, or erech apayim. He gives, he gives people a long time to develop. What does that mean in really tachlis? What, is, what does it mean? It means that, you know, you don't immediately have a consequence when you mess up. You have time a lot of, to correct your course, right? Hashem made, the, made his system that there's a lot of opportunities to correct course. Okay? So what does that teach you about being a teacher, let's say? You know? Or you know, how to relate to a student who is misbehaving or they're not going right? That's a, so you have Erechapaim. So you, because you see Hashem does that with his creatures, that doesn't mean Hashem is a human who's thinking that way, but his actions show you a way to emulate. But it also shows you that, oh, Hashem is, is kind to all of his creatures, so therefore if I see a creature, whether it be human or another creature that is in need of compassion, I'm going to translate that into human terms and say to take care of God's creatures is obviously a mandate that Hashem, you know, has given us. No? Yeah, somewhat. It doesn't help you. Well, the way the Rambam explains it in Moran he says that, the, that this revelation was given to Moshe Rabbeinu to make him into a better leader. That basically he needed a zechut to get forgiveness for the chet of the chet of the chet egel for the sin of the golden calf. So his breakthrough was learning to be an a, an even better leader and teacher of Am Yisrael by emulating these characteristics of how God runs the world, having this insight and being able to apply. I yeah, that's what the Rambam says that at different levels probably it's you know uh, of our own development we're going to relate to it more or less maybe you know maybe so I can. Uh, I can understand what you mean that sometimes, especially for us that we're all, a lot of times really trying to emphasize the transcendence of Hashem because we don't want people to anthropomorphize Hashem. So then we're like trying to stay so much away from those things that we go to the opposite extreme. It's an overcorrection. But I hear what you're saying. I do. Any other questions or comments or complaints? Well, complaints, it's also allowed. Yes. So the, there's, an, there's an interesting Gemara, there's a, or a Midrash. The Midrash says that the Malachim said to Hashem, Hashem, when is Rosh Hashanah going to be this year? And Hashem said, I don't know, go ask the Jews. They're the ones that decide when the Rosh Hashanah is, you know, because they decide on the moon, based on the moon, when is the calendar, right? So what is that really trying to tell you? It's saying that Hashem is unchanging, right? So what changes is us. Our relationship to Hashem is what's always evolving and changing. Hashem, by God telling us to do certain things at certain times, is leading us to reconfigure our relationship with Him. So it's not that He's changing, but because we're changing, in that sense, what's in Shemaim changes. Because um, an analogy that Harambam gives, very classic analogy, is he talks about fire, right? It says fire... If you hold it up to plastic, well, he didn't have plastic. If you hold it up to plastic, it melts. If you hold it up to 
uh, paper, it burns. If you hold it up to metal, it turns red hot. If you turn, hold it up to water, it evaporates. It's the same thing, right? It's the same substance, it's fire. But it has different responses. So he says in the same way, if a person, Hashem is the same, but if you are at level A in your development, then Hashem's relationship with you looks one way. And if you're at level D, because you went up a few levels, so then, then the, the relationship is different. And then if you're at level Z, I don't know how high it goes, but you, know, you, you, you go, then, and then, 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 then the relationship is different. So we're the ones actually who are reconfiguring our relationship. And one of the, one of the Sfarim that really does a beautiful idea, uh, job of speaking about this idea, and I know I've, I've mentioned this book many times in the past, I always, I always uh, uh, recommend it, is Sefer Chinuch. Sefer Chinuch talks about it in many, many places. I highly recommend the book in general. I really, really, really highly recommend it. And uh, it's a book on all the 613 mitzvot, but one of the special things he does is he gives an explanation of the meaning behind every mitzvah. He gives you like sort of a description of the mitzvah, but he gives like an idea of the reason behind the mitzvah to the extent that we can understand it. But one of the themes he always talks about is that what determines Hashem's blessing in the world, world is the mikablim, is the recipients. If the recipient is ready, then they receive. If they're not positioned properly to receive, so then they won't receive. It's not that Hashem changes, it's that we do. Or another good analogy that I sometimes use is a radio station, which I think those still exist, right? Yeah, I don't know, now everything is digital, I'm not sure, but right, they, a radio station could be playing, the, you know, is running 24 hours a day, I assume. You know, it's always on. But only if you tune into that station do you hear it. Right? So the station is the same. It could be playing the same thing again and again and again. You wouldn't know until you tuned in. Could be playing your favorite song right now. But because you're not tuned in. And when I was a kid, if you missed your favorite song, it was like tough luck for you because there's no way to find that song again until it comes on the radio again. Unless you put popped in your cassette tape and recorded it. And you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, the, it's the only, we're from the same, same generation. Oh, right. Terrible, yeah. Yeah, we used to sit with our boombox, okay, with the record. Oh, it's my favorite song. That was your only chance, and you always missed the beginning, you know, or the DJ, like, talks over the first few seconds. That was, that was old days, okay? So you don't know when it's going to come on. So the idea is what's out there is out there. We are the ones that change. So in a way, so to speak, that sounds like, wow, so Hashem doesn't change? Yeah, but think about how empowering that is because that means that Hashem basically put the choice of the destiny in our hands. It's like, when you're ready, the blessing is ready. It's just that we have to put ourselves in the position to, to get. Okay, so Bezvat Hashem next week. Same place, hopefully on time next week we'll be able to start. And I hope everyone will come back. Thank you.